For those of you who don't know me, I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director here at Lighthouse. Dan is taking the night off. I know. He's, yep. He's, uh... Lounging with some spritzer, getting a mani pedi right now. I think so. It's been a long, long week for Dan. <laughs> okay, so we have a participant reading tonight. I'm pretty excited about this. I love participant participant readings. I love it so much I can hardly say the phrase participant or word participant. I guess we should get started. What do you say? You ready to get started? Yeah. All right. Are, you, are the readers nervous? Are you nervous? Anybody? A little bit, just a tiny bit. Don't be nervous, it's fine. You're going to be great. Okay, so up first is our first reader is Paul Cohen. Paul Cohen's fiction has been published, this is a great way to get started, I just got to say, has been published in Tin House, Five Chapters, and 1111. His new novel, The Sleeping Indian, was recently named a finalist for the 2016 Big Moose Prize from Black Lawrence Press. His nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Village Voice, no pressure, anybody, just, <laughs> you know, just Village Voice, Details, and Christian Science Monitor, and others. Uh, Cohen earned an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop. Bad place. I mean, they just, they're not that serious. Where he was awarded a teaching scholarship as well as the Prairie Lights Prize for Fiction, judged by Ethan Kanan. He lives in Boulder, Colorado. Please welcome... Thank you. Um, I'm going to read from a book called The Glam Shack, which comes out in five days. I'm just going to dive in. It's hopefully... You won't need any notes. The next day, Henry buys his first plant, a dracaena from the local hardware store that only needs water once a week, and calls her with the news. I'm seeing a guy who's never owned a plant, she says. I now own a plant, he says, looking at it proudly. She says, I'm going to New Orleans to visit my fiancé. I'll call you in a week. I'll call you in a week, soft and without inflection, as if San Francisco and New Orleans inhabit separate universes and are therefore compatible or at least not incompatible. In desperation, he even tries to grasp this, that they are not incompatible and nearly dies trying. And the days that follow her departure reek like burning oil. The nights are nightmare laughter. The plant is murderous. To escape it, he credit cards a flight to the Midwest, to the sexy hearth of an old girlfriend named Sally, a woman for whom he once played Lord Byron and thought he meant it. You may think people care what you're doing, that people are watching, but guess what, Sally? Nobody's fucking watching. He says this standing in Sally's kitchen. His flight arrived less than an hour ago. Behind the house is a screened-in porch, and behind that grass sloping to a dock, a lake, it's night. There's a wall hanging. She crocheted herself. He says his piece, and then, without another wasted word, walks out the back porch down to the dock and gazes up, searching for the Pleiades, anticipating the thin snap of the screen door and the dot, dot, dot of her feet on the steps, the mothering sound of rain on a roof. It used to be their constellation, the Pleiades. After some difficulty, he finds it. No snap, 
and no dot and no snap and snap an elegant hand like a wind through his hair or rather wind through his hair like an uncaring hand the world is murdering him for the first time ever he actually looks at the Pleiades rather than imagining someone else watching him look at it cold things stars even seven sisters huddled together for warmth in deep space what of their light quite possible the Pleiades died millions of years ago and he's receiving severed lifeless energy like a leg in the mail he feels depraved he sees his face and hands touching his face without affection great lake waves embrace the docks pylons over and over simulated intimacy without end whores he says out loud a night fisherman's boat light winks green green the color of light's essence he once described as such in a rare unwatched moment a leaf backlit by the sun now he understands that green is the color of absolute absence Beneath him, boats latched together, wheeze like asthmatics. His presence is sensed by bats. Screech. He could be anything big and warm. He understands this too now. The severed limbs of the seven sisters grapple for a grip on this fine figure of an invisible man. He turns toward the house, its green apple glow, its brown seeded core, lovely, pure fruit, save... And she rises on tiptoes to find him, his form in the dark, to discover him anew, to help birth a beautiful creature from this terror, to take down wall hangings, to take up implements, long, fat needles, to disappear into an easy chair and crochet. Wait, she stands. She moves to the screen door. She catches sight of him on the dock and waves her arms like someone official guiding a jetliner to the gate. The needles, one in each hand, flash. Hey, Henry, she says, come on inside, you'll get eaten alive. The desired choreography, which describes a scenario of pursuit followed by discovery, culminating in the gathering up of Henry, the princely foundling in the arms of sexy Sally, is stymied by the implements. How can she open the screen door with an implement in each hand? What's more, dignity precludes him from calling out with instructions like, hey, shift your implements <laughs> but, but then she does it she shifts the implement from her left hand into her right which now holds two and with her elegant left she unlatches the screen door and pushes through and spatters down the steps and glides toward him with her plain white t-shirt and little blue cutoffs and camel colored ankle length cardigan flowing out behind like angel wings and stops a foot from him studying his face with a look of bemusement she says Am I right so far? Henry cocks his head, suddenly wary. I went looking for you, she says. I found you. I came for you. Is that right so far? This is not the desired choreography. Shall we embrace now, she says. A mosquito whines in Henry's ear. With her free hand, Sally slaps her arm. Damn, she says. How about we do the next part inside? And she smiles. In that same sickening, bemused fashion, and Henry raises his gaze to meet hers, and yes, she is beautiful, and no question she could have a fleet of 747s at her gate just by lifting her implements, and Lord, wouldn't it be lovely to taxi on in there, and after all, isn't this what he's been waiting for out on this chilly dock with the lifeless limbs of stars? and the green of absence and the screech of bloodsuckers and the whores and the fish and yet not only has the choreography gone wrong on the outside it's defective on the in and with a nauseating gut flip henry realizes the entire script must be ditched 
that he can't progress to the embrace no matter where it occurs because for the first time in his life he can't mix mix and match lovelies there's only one right gate for him now and it's guarded by thieves and whores thank you Thank you. Wonderful. Okay, next up is Alison Alexander. She's a British writer, currently living and working in Denver. She's a graduate of the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Book Project and is working on her first book, an historical novel about monks, parenting, and rebellion in 11th century France. Please give up for Alison. Hi, so thank you. Um, I am actually spending most of my time working on a novel about 11th century France, but I'm actually going to read from something different today. Um, I'm going to read you an extract from a short story that I've written quite recently. It's called Jumping Season, and it's about a tiny village on the west coast of Scotland, near where I grew up, and it's about a 70-year-old woman um, who goes back there after many, many years after her mother dies and she's kind of forced to come to terms with what she was before she left which was 17 years old and pregnant and sent to the local convent which she can see now from the house where she's now living Um, and so she had the baby there the baby was taken and put up for adoption and loads and loads has happened since she's got married she's been unable to have children the marriage is broken down Um, And essentially the catalyst for this little scene that I'm going to read now is that she's received an invitation to the christening of her ex-husband's grandchild. So he married, they had a daughter, and now there's another baby. And suddenly everything is coming back on this whole question of babies that you've lost or you've never had opportunities. So that is what I'm going to read. Years later, after Mum died and Beach House was sold, After she'd bought this place, Mary had seen a documentary about the modelling houses in Ireland. The laundries where they worked the girls like slaves, beat them, starved them, did God knows what else as well. They gave them no pain relief for the birth, because it was a girl's inheritance from Eve that she should suffer every moment for her ancient sin and theirs. Then the nuns fed the babies up, dressed them pretty, and sold them to rich Americans who didn't ask too many questions. And sometimes the girls stayed for years afterwards, paying off the cost of their confinement until their families forgot the shame of what they'd done or until the girls learnt to live um, without the people they were used to. And watching that, Mary had seen her own life play out in the misery of others and she'd felt in the presenter's outrage the injustice of it all. There were support groups now, networks established to restore grown babies to their mothers, forums for women to share the stories they conceal from those they love, Women write glowing tales of their time inside the convent, of the liberation it afforded them. Others speak of punishment rooms, isolation, beatings, of doors locked behind you as you passed, shoes and socks removed, meals taken in silence. And this is the life Mary lived here. Mary had walked up to the convent then, a familiar route, the one she took every day after school from the station, through the village to where the houses stop and there is only green and grey, grass and tree and sky past the turn off to Beach House and the track she used to take to golf, and then behind the trees, hardly seen, the road up to the convent. It seems almost normal now. 
brightly coloured signs just beyond the foliage, the NHS logo, the gateway and rising barrier. She'd skirted round. The nuns no longer run it, but the buildings are still dreary. Tall grey stone walls, too much stone, too little glass. The windows narrow and high, broken into tiny squares of light. She couldn't get inside or even very close, but the darkness of the place consumed. She clutches the invitation in both hands, looks at it, confused. She doesn't remember picking it up. There's moisture on it, tears. She used to believe that those babies, the ones she handed over, the later ones she lost, were simply tethered somewhere else, that her boy had grown tight-bound within another mother's love, but she knows that is a lie. And she has searched for him, of course, tried at times to bind what others cut, but it seems the man that boy became has no desire to be found. And she has heard the stories grown children tell of wounds that can't be got around, no matter how loving their adoptive parents were, and sometimes they weren't, they simply weren't, how seeming perfect was their life. The wound of believing their mother never loved or wanted them. The wound of a genetic chain ruptured, a chain that bound them to the lives that came before and would come aft, another string that might have held them to this earth. And so she knows her boy has suffered for her choice, which was no choice at all, regardless of what other truths she might learn of how he lived. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. Okay, there's a lot of names of places that I don't know how to pronounce, so I apologize. Born on the island of Mauritius. Is it Mauritius? Yes. Yes. Yes, I got that right. Um, the name I might not. Vinod Bushjit was educated there in Madagascar and the U.S. He has worked as a high school teacher and international banker in the U.S. and as a diplomat. He will read from his novel In Progress, which for which he is seeking publication. So any agents out there, pay attention. Give it up for Vinod. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's also a challenge. So let's see how I rise to the challenge or not. Uh, as I walked left into Maurice Street, about five minutes from the Catholic Church, I saw a crowd gathered in a circle in front of our house. On the outer fringes, men had put their shopping baskets on the asphalt. From the verandas and windows of the surrounding houses, women and children stretched to watch whatever event was unfolding at the center. As I got closer, I noticed the younger men were in the middle, in the inside of the circle. A gambling match, I thought, but immediately realized that would not attract so much interest, especially from women and children. There was no festival, religious or otherwise, that Sunday. And the days of cockfighting were long since gone, even in remote villages. It was election season in Mauritius, but there were neither loudspeakers and microphones nor orators. Vingetamasha, someone shouted to his companions who were lagging behind 
come see the tamasha. Tamasha. A Hindi word I often heard in Bombay movies. A word that had become part of the Creole language on the island. A word whose meaning encompasses song and dance, fun and excitement, but also commotion and drama. Just as I was about to reach the perimeter, the circle swirled outwards with people shouting, Watch out! They're about to hurl it. Some 20 feet away, Kalipa, barrel-chested and wearing the red shirt of the Labour Party, moved like a Sherman tank towards Fringant, lean and supple, and wearing the blue shirt of the Party Mosia. Two brothers in their 30s, both fishermen. Each held a harpoon pointed at the other's stomach. In the crowd, I recognized neighbors, hard-working Creole fishermen, whose livelihood was at the mercy and vagaries of sea and weather. I also spotted the neighbor who, it was rumored, raped his concubine's daughter, and the soft-spoken carpenter, vilified by his mother-in-law for being a hunchback dwarf. You ugly frog, I know you spent a fortune on sorcerers to seduce my daughter. Supporters of both political parties, clad in red and blue shirts, were at the Kalipa and Frangan event. Someone shouted, Muhammad Ali versus Sonny Liston. Whistles followed. Cain and Abel, said an old man standing next to me. His remark got no response. It puzzled me that so many men were leaning on their bicycles, waiting for the outcome of the confrontation, instead of intervening to stop it or riding to the police station about half a mile away to ask for help. The other side of me was a 16-year-old who wanted to stay and watch the Tamasha. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So glad I don't have a brother. Um, Patricia Kinka will be reading from her recently completed book, Twelve. The book began as a 12-page personal experience essay at Lighthouse. I can read over that, right? The first three chapters secured her place in a juried workshop taught by Emily Rapp Black. Emily became her mentor and her editor, and as they say, the rest is history. Now she's shopping for an agent and hopefully a publisher. Please welcome Patricia. Um, I wrote the book 12 for my husband Stephen and had he lived today would have been his 67th birthday borrowing from a line of a Margaret Atwood poem 
Against the disappearance, I make this charm from nothing but paper. Six of the chapters are paper charms, memories against Stephen's disappearance. Six alternating chapters are about loss and grief. This is one small charm. I'm going out to feed the critters. That was Stephen's way of telling me he was going out to feed the birds, the squirrels, and even a family of field mice who lived in our flagstone wall. Once he came to get me and said, be really quiet, stand here, don't move, watch right over there. In a moment, a little head with Mickey Mouse ears popped up like a tiny finger puppet from behind the the wall, looked around, and made a frantic dash. He grabbed a sunflower seed, hightailed it back into a small crack between two stones. I think we have a family, Stephen said. I'm pretty sure there are five of them. The parents, three little ones. Five mice? Jesus, Stephen. I'm pretty sure there are millions of them. In time, the mice became quite nonchalant. They sauntered out, carefully selected a seed, hopped up on the wall, posing in perfect mouse form. Holding the seed carefully between their tiny little paws, they nibbled away, regarding us with a fearless eye. One morning, Stephen was, ho- was building raised beds for our vegetable garden, and I was planting flowers. I reached for a flower pot, and as I lifted it, a mouse came tearing out from underneath. I jumped, screamed, and raced over to Stephen. He couldn't stop laughing, even as he gathered me into his protective embrace. I wish you could have seen yourself. You jumped up in the air, just like they do in the cartoons. It was really funny. He held me out at arm's length. Come on, they're more afraid of you. You're bigger. Afraid of us? You've got to be kidding. They think you're the gravy train. You they love. They own the frigging yard. Now you're just being silly. Really? I'm bigger? Well, don't come running to me the next time you see a spider. This sobered my husband immediately. Stephen had a somewhat irrational fear of spiders. If he saw one in the house, he would run for a massive can of Raid. I had to put a stop to it. No spraying insecticide in the house, I informed him. Well, you only say that because you've never had a black widow crawling on you. I was familiar with the story. I'd heard it more than once. Nonetheless, Stephen would launch into telling me about the time he was working on a carpentry job on some high rise in downtown Denver. When some guy named Jimmy said, and I quote, dude, do not move. There's a motherfucking black widow crawling up your arm. Somehow, the aforementioned Jimmy, through an intricate dance involving a rolled-up newspaper and, according to Stephen, nerves of steel, managed to reroute the spider off my husband's body. He then stomped on it with a size 10 work, 10, size 10 work boot. End of story. Except that it wasn't. Stephen never quite got over it. He couldn't stomach spiders in the house. I once made the mistake of coming to bed with my book and a handful of crackers. What do you think you're doing? You can't eat those in bed. Crumbs attract spiders. (laughs) What? I love spiders don't eat crumbs. They eat insects. You must be thinking of ants.
I don't care. Stephen stared me down. I mean it. I really mean it. Sometimes when we were working in the house, I would hear him say, Hey, you're not allowed in here. Do I come into your house? Then he would yell, Patricia! This was my cue to come running with whatever weapon was, hand- was handy. A newspaper, dish towel, fly swatter. Stand back, I would say. I'll handle this. And with one swift blow... I put an end to my husband's tiny tormentor. Then I would turn to Stephen and say, Do you see what I have done for you? I've killed for you. I hope you appreciate it. Thank you, Trish. I very much appreciated that. That was wonderful. Okay, next up from, originally from Ottawa? Ottawa. I'm kidding. I know, Ottawa. Sorry. <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? <laughs> Sorry, I just, I thought that would be funny. Um, how do you pronounce your last name? Oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> I thought Canadians were supposed to be nice. Um, originally from Ottawa, Canada, Ainsley McQuaw. Yes! Two for two! Sort of. I'm sure I'm... Anyways, okay. Earned her MFA in creative uh, nonfiction from the New School. Tonight she'll be reading from an excerpt from her memoir in progress, Saint Agony, the story of leaving leaving behind an almost two-decade-long life and career in New York City in favor of the unknown 100-year-old homestead in rural southeast Idaho. Awesome. Please welcome Ainsley. I cinch the scratchy, bleach-white terry terry cloth robe tighter around my waist, wrap a second robe around my bare legs prickled with goosebumps, and tuck my feet into this makeshift cocoon. My fingernail beds on both hands, my personal temperature litmus have already purpled. The fluorescent lights cast an unnatural yellowed glow on the room's occupants, two other models, also in their 30s, and a dresser, a petite woman in her her mid-60s whose job it is to help me zip dresses and button blouses and remove pants and wrench two small boots off my feet by pulling hard from my ankles as I sit clenching a chair and try to not be lifted up and away. As if being born pretty exempts you from having to do anything, like dress yourself, wait in line, pay for drinks or dinner, think. Snapped out of my glazed-over daze, I look up as a college-aged intern enters with an armful of clothes, which she sets with the clinking of metal hangers on one of the rolling racks. She acknowledges us with haughty silence. We know what to do. Long-limbed and lanky, the three models unfold to a standing position in a slow shedding of robes, bare skin now exposed. We we wait in bras and thong underwear and skin-toned hues, arms bent at the elbows, hands clasped and tucked under chins, attempting warmth against the blasting AC. The dresser hands me an evening gown, long and crimson with intricate beadwork from top to bottom on the sheer outer layer, and I slip it on over my head, both arms raised as the garment slinks down around my body. I zip it, myself, up my left side. I try to avoid the dresser's help whenever possible. The slightest touch from a stranger makes me cringe. After searching for a size for my pile on the floor, I slide on a pair of black patent four-inch stilettos and stand by the doorway, waiting, ignoring the blisters already forming on my heels and pinky toes from wearing these shoes for more than four hours. Pointy-toed high heels are not the foot's friend. 
Before emerging, I look in the full-length mirror, searching for hints of my true self in the reflection. My long, dyed red hair is pulled back into a low, wispless bun. My matte makeup lined and mascaraed eyes, moved lips, rosy cheeks, apparent yet natural. The dress, the hair, the makeup transforms me into someone who could pass as sophisticated, into someone who can more than pass as a functioning human, into a woman you might see across the room at an extravagant party, a glass of champagne in her hand, and think something like, wow, she must have it all, or I wonder what it's like to be her, a lifestyle photo torn from a luxury magazine, then tossed in the trash. In reality, I would never wear this dress. I would have neither an appropriate occasion nor the money to afford it, and at this point, my actual self is so far from the put-togetherness my immediate appearance exudes, my secret. When the first model returns, I step out, turning right to enter the adjacent showroom, a large room where groups of buyers for high-end chain department stores or small boutiques sit at long tables. My dress is heavy to walk in, and I have to make sure the delicate fabric doesn't get caught underneath me or catch in one of my heels. Both tripping and ripping the clothes are frowned upon and can mean getting fired. As I stand before the buyers, they talk to each other in hushed tones as they take notes on what I'm wearing. They take pictures, often with a camera flash that leaves me blinded than migraine for the rest of the day. A closed mouth smile set on my face, posture perfect, one hand on a hip, then the other, a half turn, a smile over my right shoulder, another half turn. My motions mechanical, smooth and slow, as I wait to be dismissed by a nod or a wave of a hand, or rarely a thank you, often the only words uttered in my direction all day. Then I return to the back room and put the next outfit on. It is always, always a rush to change, a frenzy of flying garments that then stack up on one of the chairs, but out in the showroom, a calm confidence conveyed an act. Those in the fashion industry refer to this type of booking as the closet, which it always was, a windowless room with shelves stacked with pairs of shoes and boots and miscellaneous accessories and rolling racks waiting to be filled with hanging clothes. The high-profile, high-paying bookings from early on in my career had turned into this. And while the job certainly supported me after three weeks of the closet, I would wonder where those days had gone. What had I accomplished? What had I contributed to, well, anything? What was I doing with my life? Playing professional dress-up. I knew that as a 35-year-old full-time model, I was lucky to be working at all. In an industry oversaturated by skeletal youth, I couldn't complain. A model never complains. I had learned early on in my career to speak up meant to be difficult, career suicide. At 35, a molding peach, ancient by industry standards, I felt as if I had been standing at the edge of the conveyor belt for a long time, a lineup of hungry young women behind me, as I waited for the final nudge that would push me off and into the oblivion of old age. And then what? This question paralyzed me. One day, in the hidden realm of the closet, as we ate lunch served to us by a male model that made his living as a caterer, one of the other models announced she was pregnant five months along. Definitely showing, she asked us to not say anything. Being outed as pregnant would have cost her her job. In cahoots with the dresser, this woman ensured that all the looser tops and tunics and dresses were given to her, leaving the luxury spandex leggings and form-fitting knits for me. I remember standing in the showroom, in front of a table of buyers, posing next to this other model, the pregnant one. One of the buyers, a robust balding man in his late 50s, turned to me and said, that shirt makes your belly look big. Over the years, I had grown used to workplace comments like this about my too big hips or too high forehead, too thin hair and too small breasts and too wide nose and too reserved demeanor, but being told I looked big next to the five-month pregnant woman was one I found especially comical. <laughs> Plus, we had just eaten lunch. 
Without changing the expression on my face, that constant mask of marketable happiness, I waited to be dismissed. Home from work, I kept a routine. Eat a quick dinner, often pesto from a jar over pasta from a box with a side of arugula that spilled from a plastic container. Then promptly numb any remaining thoughts of the day with red wine and or weed. And in pajamas, get into bed, my laptop open across my belly, ready to watch a show or movie that would further remove me from my life. Though it was still light out, I was already under the covers stoned that Monday evening when the phone rang. It was my booker, the woman responsible for coordinating the times and fees for my job in the closet. She and I barely knew each other, corresponding via email, rarely speaking on the phone or meeting in person. I uh, hate to ask you this, it's a bit embarrassing, but are you on your period? Uh, yeah. I lied. Why? Well, your client called this afternoon after you left. One of the buyers complained, saying you looked fat in the clothes, and I assured them you must be on your period. But they asked that you not come back to work this week. Got it. There was nothing else for me to say. Trying to state a case would have come off as whiny, and pointing fingers never does anyone any good. I hung up the phone and started to cry, knowing in that moment something needs to change. Thank you. Thank you, Ainsley. Next up is the incomparable Judith Sarah Gelt. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, Judith has almost completed her MFA from the renowned JMP program, otherwise known as the Judith MFA, MFA program, <laughs> a large portion of which is based at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. I, th- I heard hey, that's a pretty cool place, yeah. Um, her work has been in Portland Review, Iron, um, Iron Horse Lit Review, Best of Referential Magazine, Broad Street Magazine, and Superstition Review. She has just completed a memoir called Reckless Steps to Sanity, um, and it, it also says, hey, take a minute to say hello, exclamation point. She is delightful, and that is so true. Come on up. <laughs> Thanks. This is a hybrid piece called Blue. Number one. I bite my lip blue and swollen when I find my bottles of antidepressants standing empty in the bathroom cupboard. Did I order refills? My medicated brain replays depression's last deep end plunge, and I can't bear to get my feet wet. Maybe I didn't complete the order? What if this time I can't force my lids open, or I'm stuck in bed on my back, a turtle, legs waving with no hope to right itself? Maybe I didn't press send. Two, since my mother's death at 97, I'm the only member of my family downing drugs for mental illness. I never told my mother not about the drugs or my depression that took hold when I was 43. I could never lay this burden on her because she suffered plenty. 40 years of bipolar disorder. The depressions bound her to bed for weeks and choked the house with her high-pitched self-hatred mother slurs. I'm a horrible person, a horrible mother. I'm so sorry, Judy. I'm such a terrible mother. I was 14 when it began. She took lithium that saved her and the rest of us from bearing more of the manic dangerous times. Once, she piled books in the den and lit them on fire. Three, my small white discs are 200 milligrams each, but I prescribed 150 milligrams each evening. I purchase a pill splitter. 
I love the name Pill Splitter. <laughs> Four. My daughter was ten when depression fucked with my brain. Muzzled by fear that I was now my mother, I drove her to her father's, and I drove myself to the hospital for anything they could do to prevent her from becoming the daughter of a mother depressed and unable to mother. The medicating began. Patient health questionnaire, PHQ-9, depression module, modified by patient. Over the last two weeks, how often have you been bothered by any of the following problems? Not remembering if you fed the dog, feeding the dog, worrying the dog will get fat and die young because maybe you had already fed her. <laughs> Nearly every day. Feeling tired and having little energy and several days. Going to bed believing you're finally tired enough to fall right to sleep, but lying on your back crying, telling yourself you'll feel better in the morning, then realizing you're awake and not feeling better. More than half the days. Not able to face the dog's whining and pacing because you haven't been for a walk in days, then feeling guilt-ridden for not being nicer to the dog because she's whining and pacing. More than half the days. thinking about making an appointment with your therapist and not doing it nearly every day. Six, with my mother gone, I'm perched alone on the mental illness treatment branch of the family tree. I'm not saying I have no relatives who need meds. I'm saying I have none who believe they need meds. <laughs> my brother self-medicates with the strenuous study of Orthodox Judaism, his marriage, and artificial sunlight during winter months, and these successfully treat his mild case of bipolar disorder diagnosed over 20 years ago. Sometimes I believe his treatments work, sometimes I don't. This may depend upon whether or not I'm depressed. My daughter is 32. I settle on my branch, and I watch her navigate her life. She knows I'll give her a hand, help her up the tree to join me if necessary, though it would break me in two. Blue. The stage is dark. Downstage in silhouette are two chairs where man and woman sit unaware of anything beyond their immediate space. They talk without sound. Center stage. Woman in blue sits in a chair. She's in spotlight. She wears a blue dress. She slowly stands unaware of the silhouetted scene behind her. Woman in blue. Walks. Stopping to emphasize points, etc. Now he adds disgraceful to his catalog of attributes. His voice sings off key in his head. Woman freezes. Man stands, faces audience, uses hand arm gestures to emphasize points as woman in blue continues. Mimics a man's voice. It's no disease, and it's treated by a shrink, and reputable doctors aren't tagged with nicknames. Man sits in woman and man continue their silent conversation. He doesn't say it aloud, but I watch for the rutted brow. Man freezes and woman stands, faces audience, mimics a different woman's voice. But isn't being depressed the same thing as feeling really sad? Shit, everyone gets sad. Pull yourself together. For God's sake, go walk the fucking dog. Woman sits. Sometimes I conceal my suffering, 
if I can make my mouth move, I make conversations, take care of business. If I can balance my body, I walk upright. If I can muster laughter, man and woman silently laugh uproariously. It sounds sincere. I'm a fraud. Man and woman suddenly stop laughing. Still, then others don't insist, what's wrong? What's happened? Since, of course, everything is wrong and nothing has actually happened. Except I long to be in my bed more than anything in the world, more than being with my child. Straight-faced man and woman and woman in blue all turn their heads and make eye contact with each other and scene. Eight. I'm no longer the ill-fated girl I was at 16 who imagined her respite from pain only after an overdose, only after my breathing stopped and I turned blue. Now I'm willing to do whatever it takes, somehow get up, get dressed, make appointments, and drive to save myself. I'm no longer the girl who swallowed a bottle of pills. I survived and life improved. That's how I know relief can exist in existing. Thank you, Judah. You know, we should start a band and call it Pill Splitter. Don't you think that'd be really cool? Our next reader is Amy Dreyer. Um, she's a nonprofit professional in her former life, and she lives in Denver. And she's been, she's been writing fiction for a little over a year now with a clunky manuscript, ooh, that's a good adjective, and a handful of short stories to show for it. She'll be reading from a new mystery she's working on titled Murder Comes to Macaw, set on a rural island in the Pacific Northwest. The scene that she's going to read features a protagonist, journalist Joe Ford, I bet you she's a feisty person. She sounds like a feisty character. Trying to pull information out of a teenage suspect in a string of thefts. Please welcome Amy. Hi. So, note, I, I hope you didn't get too attached to that because this is... Um, <laughs> This is, this is uh, my first reading, and so in a crisis of confidence, I made a last-minute decision to read something else, which is always a great idea, um, I'm sure. Uh, so this is the, the start to a short story. You need at least two five-gallon buckets for gooey ducking. A third one will not seem too terribly amiss, thought Sharon Rose Plantage, as she pulled from the tin pail and shucked the last oyster. She also thought about being lucky that the low tide had come during the light. Though day or night did not in some ways matter because she knew her work. She did not need failing, her failing eyesight to navigate the ankle-busting oyster beds any more than spawning salmon needed a map home, but she feared the night now. The oysters came currently from the dwindling daylight hours. Her great-grandmother had established the family beds, and they still yielded heavy, hard, barnacled hauls that in the R months transformed first into glistening pearls of flesh, then to hot, crispy, juicy, salty, savory nuggets of sea. Stem to stern to table, they came and went through her well-learned hands. For 50 years, her oysters had grown large to be plucked at the time of need and devoured by hungry, dependent mouths. She stood at the white porcelain farm sink looking over Plantsitch Bay, and the sun finished setting in golden and orange rays over the jagged peaks of the Cascades. Beyond her kitchen window and below the heavens, the slick algae covering the mucky, rocky shore shone bright lime green in the receding light which also blanketed the dark, jagged timberline of the mainland in the distance. 
She kept a fair eye on the burgeoning night twinkle over town, safe from her rocky shores. Ringed on both sides by high sandbars liberally covered in pale rock, the bay harbored her well. The low, sulfurous tide smell clung to her nose as it drifted with the gentle breeze through the open window, along with the shrieks of the gulls and the caw of the crows saying goodnight to her and to each other. Usually unnoticed, tonight the odor hung heavy as the gunmetal gray sucking sand that clung to her bright red rubber as... hung as heavy as the gunmetal gray sucking sand that clung to her bright red rubber muckers. Cold clung to her as well, and pulling her wool cardigan tighter, she scowled at it. Sharon Rose considered herself a robust woman, and her consideration was not incorrect. Part of the original settlement on Hook Island, her great-grandfather was a proud Pollock, and her great-grandmother just as proud a Swede. The Plantage clan grew well, and the women grew as rugged and broad as they did tall. Her six-foot buxom vigorous stature had so accustomed itself to her frame with the passing of her seasons that she often now thought of herself as sister to the old-growth dug firs standing behind the homestead. She had seen the women of the Hook age in two distinct ways. Since she'd not left the island for more than a night or two in 20 years, it encompassed her entire scope of reference. And the generations of women in her reference as they aged grew either larger or smaller. With her gray eyes, the mercurial color of the brackish sound surrounding the hook, she had seen darker women diminish to husks and develop an irreversible chill as the decades wore on. With her overlarge ears like weazen cauliflower under fine white hair, she had heard them complain of the cold now permanently dwelling inside their very bones. She figured the parting of hot and cold ways had to do with genes, and hers and those of the fairer skin were a hardy stock that remembered that insulation is much needed to survive winters filled with creeping, seeping damp. Well insulated, Sharon should never feel the chill, but she had begun to. Not to say that time and its insatiable greed had not taken things from her besides warmth. Her shoulders stooped down and forward, and not just with the weight of the oyster, clam, mussel, and gooey duck harvest. Her shelled blessed burdens had yielded less and less in the last few years. Particularly, clamming on Plantage Bay was not now a viable claim. Last year, a bloom of algae had brought the red tide, and those deadly, seizing, paralyzing little microbes hung on like boogers inside the butter clams. They wouldn't be safe again until next year, assuming the water stayed cold enough this summer to prevent another bloom. Her children had never suffered or died for her shellfish as many unwise, unlucky women's had. She remembered in particular young Angus Miller, a tall, blustery boy, just her own tender age of 10, when he had stopped aging. On the back end of the hook, Angus had gone with bucket and shovel one day to harvest clams. A fine day for a fine lad on his own, looking to take in the green apple blossom scented air and gentle sun, he had skipped school. In the early summer, this was not an uncommon occurrence on the hook. It was the general tacit agreement in the community that, there, that were children moved to learn outdoors and from the outdoors now and again, they would be better for it. His absence had, however, been noticed. Twenty children in one room do not make for much strain when it came time to call attendance. As they had on occasion held hands and even kissed once, and knowing Angus's predilection for early morning outings, wherein he would fill his belly and then nap away the afternoon, Sharon Rose resolved to skip herself after lunch and rendezvous on their favorite beach. There, high up on the sandy shore, under the bright sun glittering off the sparkling blue sound, and just shy of tender blackberry shoots, she had certainly found blonde Angus in quiet repose. 
She had also found him covered in tacky vomit, eyes frozen, glassy and bloodshot, hands clawed in rictus and clutching at nothing. Angus had not known better, had not been told by his inland-dwelling island family that the Crimson Sea brings toxin and death. From that hot afternoon onward, Sharon Rose never forgot to be certain of the treasures claimed from the sea before consuming them. Thank you, Amy. That was wonderful. Next up is Annette Taylor. Yeah. Annette Taylor, bless you, lives two lives. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. In one, she's a molecular geneticist by day. She's a molecular geneticist in a clinical lab arena. I don't know, they had arenas? Like, do they like, battle or something? Um, helping join the dots between new gene discoveries. Not, not blue genes, but G-E-N-E discoveries and patients who can benefit from genetic testing. And the other, she's right here, forever nourished, and this is true. And, I mean, she's always here. She's wonderful. She's amazing. She's on our board. Uh, <laughs> forever nourished and uplifted by the Lighthouse community. Oh, this is a really sweet bio. Where she has taken countless classes, relished her experience in the book project, and is honored to serve on the board. Her lives as a geneticist and a lighthouse writer are entwined just like, I don't know, oh, a double helix, yes. <laughs> That's pretty good. Tonight, uh, tonight, Annette is reading from her book in progress, The Poetry of Genes, a memoir from inside the genetic testing world. Please give a warm welcome to Annette Taylor. Thank you. So I'm reading from a prologue in progress. We are a living poem. The DNA you and I carry around every day, coiled tightly in each of our cells, chants instructions so our body knows how to work. Each gene align in the verse, verses orchestrating to make stories. There are repeated sections alliteration, inverted lines, white space. Mutations in the genes make breaks in the rhythm and glitches in the works. But astoundingly, given that we have 300,000 genes, the poem flows along smoothly for most of us almost all of the time. With only four letters, in its alphabet, the language of DNA is poetry that guides the intricacies of our physiological lives. My introduction to DNA was only a handful of years after the 1953 Eureka moment when Rosalind Franklin's now famous X-ray crystallography photo and the model building of Watson and Crick made the helical structure of the molecule click into understanding. My mom gave me the book, The Double Helix, when I was 10, the year after its publication in 1968 by James Watson. And there I sat on the big, tall-backed, brown Scandinavian rocker in our living room in England, transfixed by the story until I devoured it all. I still remember loving the photos, the X pattern in the X-ray picture, the signature of the helix, 
the lab prickling with equipment and an air of mystery at the Gothic collegiate campus of Cambridge. In July of 1969, the same year I became a genetics lover, my mom woke my brother and me up in the middle of the night and along with dad, we all watched with awe Neil Armstrong's first step onto the moon. I can see the bright glare off his spacesuit and hear those beep, 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 and the voices from NASA to this day. I was prouder than heck of my species, a little extra proud of being American at that moment, and hooked forever on the thrill of exploration and discovery. To me, discovery in the vast universe out there and the universe inside of us um, have always been just opposite sides of the same exciting coin. If you stretch your DNA all the way out and join every piece end to end, it could lasso the moon. I kid you not. In fact, it could make the trip out to the moon and back 6,000 times. The DNA from just one of your cells would stretch from your head to your toe if you're six feet tall. It's all coils upon coils upon coils upon coils, a little like those telephone cords um, in days gone by that would twizzle in on themselves. Divided into our 23 pairs of chromosomes, all this DNA in one cell fits smartly into a nucleus that's six microns across, six thousandths the size of a sharp pencil dot. We have about 10 trillion cells, so you can check the math. <laughs> Let me bring you through time from the 1990s till now. My story as a geneticist winding like a double helix um, with genetics's own story, intersecting in, medically, um, intersecting in medically relevant moments along the way. Tales of how translating the discovery of the fragile X gene into a genetic test, how it helps families reach a diagnosis for this common inherited cause of mental retardation. How offering genetic testing for celiac disease helps shorten the diagnostic odyssey for sick children with gluten sensitivity. How testing genes that metabolize pain meds can avoid tragedies like a baby who died from breastfeeding by a mother who was taking codeine and converted it to morphine too fast because of a mutation that she had. The story of genetics is a mosaic of hope and loss. While watching my father turn keys over and over and over in his hands one time last year, his soulful gray eyes caught mine full of worry. What do these do, he asked. I already knew from testing ordered by his neurologist that he carried the APOE gene variant that increases the risk for Alzheimer's disease.
Thank you, Annette. All right. Um, I guess if you if you um, if you haven't read tonight, you're probably like, well, what kind of what the hell is the order? Here? I can't do that. <laughs> what the hell is the order here? <laughs> you're right. You're supposed to move. I'm learning. Um, what the hell's the order tonight? It's totally random. It's whatever's on this list. Does that sound good? All right. So I'm going to get to you. Don't worry. Um, okay. So um, actually, I have a couple. Of, one person I don't have a bio for is Mary Catherine Lamar here. Mary Catherine? No? Okay. Oh, unfortunately. All right. Um, Randy Sylvan thinks I don't have a bio for him, but I do. <laughs> Randy Sylvan has taken workshops at Lighthouse. I, do you know who wrote this? All right. Okay. Has taken workshops at Lighthouse for six years and enjoys writing about balancing career and parent, parenting. I was going to say parenting. Parenting responsibilities or not balancing, as is oftentimes the case. He enjoys playing golf, reading about history, and hanging out with his wife. I swear to God, that's what it says. Elizabeth, and playing with their two sons, Joseph and Daniel. Please give it up for Randy Sylvan. Thank you. And here's to Lighthouse for all the awesomeness that it does. I'm going to read uh, a little bit of a story I just wrote called Rejection Letter. (laughs) Dear Sir, I'm sorry to inform you that we must reject your manuscript. You must understand we see hundreds and hundreds of submissions and can only accept the exceptional one. Again, I am sorry to be the one to tell you, but yours is not exceptional. (laughs) It is depressing. I urge you to ask yourself, do people want to read depressing stuff? They do not. People don't want to hear of hardship in kids with problems. Think about it. If a reader has a normal child or no child at all, why would they want to read about all the disasters of an abnormal one? Why would they want to be bogged down by such stuff? Believe me, they wouldn't. I certainly didn't. And if a reader has an abnormal kid, do you think they want to read about someone else with similar problems? Don't you think they already have enough of their own and want to escape their reality? You must learn to think about your audience. I don't think you considered the readers of the story when you wrote it. And that is a critical literary mistake. Never do that. At least, never do that if you want to be successful in literature or in life, for that matter. (laughs) And to be completely honest, if this is the kind of stuff you're writing, I recommend pursuing another endeavor. As a side note, (laughs) think of Dudley in Harry Potter. Dudley is a miserable, ill-behaved character, and we, as readers, don't like him. In your story, you show empathy for the poorly behaved special needs kid. In your story, you show that the special needs kid really feels bad after he tells his parents he hates them and wants to kill them. You show that if if he could contain himself, he really does love his mommy and daddy. Remember, always, people want miserable child characters to just be miserable. (laughs) Don't reinvent the wheel and try to make the Dudley character something else. The wheel exists for a reason. (laughs) 
You start the day off with another call from the grandmother. I mean, really, do we need another? At least the conversation starts off good, where David and the grandmother both seem to be doing okay. And I like that the parents tell David how much they love him and miss him, and he says he loves them too. And how they tell David that they will get him a very special present if they receive a good report from the grandmother upon their return. But then it goes awry. Like, did you really need to have David tell his mother that he wished he didn't have special needs when she was away on her special birthday celebration? That he didn't like being different from everyone else with his speech problems and his inability to control his outbursts. And then to have the mother start crying and hugging the father because that is the first time David ever said that and that she isn't there to console him and tell him that she will always take care of him and of the grandmother there to witness the disastrous nature of the family. Does all that have to happen on their first full day away? Because from that moment on, we don't get to enjoy their day. You show the mother saying that they should fly home right that day and be there for their son, and the father disagreeing and saying they can't let David dictate everything in their lives. I like that you don't have the parents go home at that point. I like that, for a brief moment at least, we have hope that we'll have a good time on this getaway. You succeed when, the, when they buy an expensive crate of Cabernet from the first winery they visit after the phone call. I like that the father doesn't even ask the price of the crate when he says he wants it after doing the tasting. That was surprising and showed that the father was ready to make the most of their time and spend money. As a side note, Watching characters spend money on stuff is enjoyable. <laughs> Americans like consumption. We like reading about characters with fancy cars and nice clothes. So if possible, have the father buy the mother stuff on this vacation, even if she doesn't really want anything because she's sad. You would add much needed positive energy if they stumble upon a boutique and walk out with a new ensemble. I also enjoy that the father tried to cheer up the mother who couldn't get the earlier conversation out of her mind. I liked how he reminded her that David's psychiatrist said that they'd really done a great job with David, considering the circumstances. That given the challenges of David and the way his mind worked, they really had risen to the occasion and helped him, even though the, they told the psychiatrist they felt like failures as parents. But again, you repeated the mistake of bringing up negativity. You had the mother bring up something else about the psychiatrist, some idea of ratcheting up David's medications to address his violent outbursts, but that the meds came with potential side effects like permanent involuntary muscle twitches. And now the mother didn't want to go to that level of medication, but the father did. You spent what? At least two pages showing them fight about what to do about the medications, what to do with David's school options, and who to designate in their will to take care of get stuck with David if something happened to them. Look, I get it. David makes their life tough. And I'm sure having a 10-year-old say something like that would be tough to hear. I am sorry the parents had to hear that. But the thing you need to remember is you've already shown us David's difficulties. You don't need to make the same point over and over and over. Don't you think you made your point about David during the initial grandmother call? or even the lists with a friendship group and speech therapy. As a reader, I don't need to have it hammered over my head that David is difficult. Show me once, and then that's enough. It's not like I need to be shown time after time after time 
that these problems exist. Maybe your characters need to deal with that reality day in, day out. But as a reader, on the outside, I don't. Let me put it this way. One of our martini drinking friends started coming to our happy hours complaining about this and that. One time she was overlooked for a promotion. Another time her boyfriend drank too much and couldn't perform. All of us listened to her and told her we felt bad, but you know what? We planned our next little weekend getaway. We didn't invite her. I want you to think about that as you rewrite this story. <laughs> like, think about my no longer invited friend when he showed the drives to the various wineries on Saturday, where the father asked the mother, if we knew that it would be like this with David, would we still have had him? And the mother says, I don't know, probably not, right? And how the, and how the mother sobs after she says that. And the father doesn't do anything to console her because he's thinking the exact same thing but can't get himself to actually say those words. And he's shocked that his wife verbalized those ideas that they sat in silence the rest of the day, the rest of the weekend, driving from one winery to another with nothing left to say. My final comment I want to leave you with, and this is really the key advice I want to give you with this story. <laughs> Delete the special needs kid part. <laughs> Just snip it. That way you can show this couple on an exciting vacation having a great time. Think about it. There's no kid without friends that's on medications that fail to prevent violent outbursts where he hits his grandmother. There's no kid that breaks his parents' heart with a self-reflection on how hard his life is and the parents speculate on whether they want their son in their life preamble. All the things that took me out of this story will resolve themselves with that simple deletion. The possibilities are endless if you make this change. Imagine how happier the couple would be and the grandmother would be and the world would be. The world really isn't set up to deal with such distressing details. Strongly consider these ideas and resubmit this story. Let your imagination go wild with the potential if you're no longer bogged down by David, a.k.a. Dudley. Remember that with the thousands and thousands of pages of Harry Potter, Dudley is only there for a few of them. In fact, Harry Potter would still be Harry Potter if Dudley never even existed. Damn, Randy. That's good stuff. Okay. Whiplove Sani was born and raised in Delhi, India, and came to the U.S. 14 years ago for graduate school in economics. He currently lives in Cleveland, Ohio, and teaches at a college nearby. He will be reading two poems. Please welcome Big Poems. Thank you. Um, the first one is called Frequent Flyer. Um, there are two Hindi words in it. Chanderi and Banarsi they are just types of fabrics after the cremation I gathered what I could of her saris and their forever flowers of mustard and ochre their brocade borders raw silk pure cotton the sheer chiffons Chanderi Banarsi I put what I could in a dirty blue Samsonite duffel bag. 
United was kind, free bags. I picked them in Cleveland off a rubber carousel and carried them outside into the night home on my shoulder. The saris, never in America before, had huddled in the bitter cold like immigrants stunned by jet lag, clean air and all that hot water. As time went by, I brought each sari to women I knew in this other life. Out of the dirty blue Samsonite duffel bag, one by one each sari flew and turned into curtain or runner or Halloween costume or last minute prop for role play night. It had been my brother who poured my mother's ashes in Ganga. I'd kept watch on my father and the poem could end here, but that's not what happens and nor did the stanza that came before. I still have that dirty blue Samsonite duffel bag inside a closet, the saris huddled like immigrants stunned by the quiet, the cold, the midnight lit stores, and now weighed down by an old plastic basket with three years worth of credit card offers. Um, this is a short one. Uh, it was written in response to a writing prompt, and the prompt was to invent a title and then just write a poem to fit it. And the template of the title was supposed to be the concrete noun of the abstract noun. So, for instance, the mic of euphoria or the tent of depression or something like So, this one is called um, the toothbrush of your hate. <laughs> I retrieve it from behind the mirror. You were always, you said, an aggressive brusher. <laughs> when I was near, you did it even harder. Your mouth frothing fluoride and blood, the shade of pink, like milk blushing with the ruafza that my mother stirred each morning into plastic cups. Your ball of spit, Pepto pink, I wanted to break its lobbed arc to the sink, swallow it whole, taste the metal and the mint you issued each morning from your lips. Now you're gone and this brush is dry, so I swallow and pinch it between my molars. Then I run it hard down all gum lines, trying to trigger the taste of your mouth. I draw blood. It mingles with the memory of your blood. This is not our child, but it will have to do. Thanks. Thank you. I believe it was Ezra Pound who said, 
never use a phrase such as dim lands of peace, so the noun and the abstraction. He says it dulls the image. Just a little thought. For it. Um, all right. Can I keep these? Uh, Jessica Carson Davis's poems have appeared in Zone 3, Columbia Poetry Review, Pilgrimage, Chronogram, and other places, including her chapbook. Chat um, how do you say that? Utanasana. Right. Yep. Utanasana. That's a beautiful word. She studied poetry at the Uni- University of Illinois, and after many, uh, many years of travel, she now lives in Denver, where she works remotely as a technical writer for a software company, and she is and I'm very proud to say this. She's the current Axine, ma- oh my goodness, Alice Maxine Bowie Fellow at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Yeah. She's currently working on a manuscript of poetry as well as a sculptural project making poem boxes. Please give a warm welcome to Jessica Carson Davis. The rest of us. This desert is full of ghosts. You can see them squat by the side of the road, adobe baked in their own ovens, outposts of another time, a different when, stripped down to withered husks that hold whispers, remnants of old lives, of those who moved on after the highway's migration changed traffic's path, changed everything. Yet some witnesses remain, a few locals, coyotes, and and the mesas that haunt against the night as it sets in. They might sometimes pay attention, turning purple in the distance as they hold their breath for the rest of us. This one's called Documentation. It's what I write for a living. The birds along the Uruguayan beach at night never strut more than a couple meters at a time. When there's a need, they wing and fly. Otherwise, it's walk, 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 pause. Walk, 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 pause. Sit quiet long enough and see a life written in sand. White-breasted flight, I do not know your name. In the garden, I want to build not a portal to, but another new dimension, put it in a box. We all function within a set of constraints, whether six flat sides or the time between being born and when we die. To think that I am not trapped is a lie, and yet I lick the edges of my habitat's boundaries and find them to taste sweet. Revel in the sugar stench of rotting flesh, the path of decay on which we're set from the day of our first breath. And yet, I do not regret this house I did not build, did not inherit. Its roof, the lid that closes over days that fade with the memory of what we ate for dinner. I am content with a couple of keys on a ring, with Saturn in my pocket, jingling. I like to be reminded of to know the limits of my constraints, the insufficiency of language, 
the only thing that can transcend and transport into, pa into and past more dimensions than we can ever see, smell, breathe, be. In my house, there is a door I keep propped open when I leave to wander in the garden of impossible yearning. Keep going. Both our phones were dead and we had no map. The roads became smaller, continued to narrow, turned once again to dust, but we kept going. And when we came upon the lake, I took your hand and whispered, this is not the end. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Okay, we're halfway done. I'm joking now. There's only one reader left. Yeah, right? Well, how would you know? How am I asking you? Uh, I don't have a bio for this gentleman. Um, he goes by the name of J.D. Fry or J. Diego or Mr. Fry, I suppose. Yeah, something like that. Um, I do know a little bit about him. Um, he's written two wonderfully hilarious books of poetry. Um, one is called, um, we stand up, what's, what's your t-shirt say? Umbrellas or else? Yes, and then the year the eggs cracked. Um, I know that in a, there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, sometimes those, he has his book titles on underwear, so I'm glad you just, yeah, I'm um, I also know that in a past life he was a program director um, and um, yoga instructor at a nudist colony, right? Exactly. And he was fired for, you, you can't really say, right, because you signed a non-disclosure or something like that? Yeah, so. Yes, yes. Um, he's a good friend, wonderful poet, and he's going to carry us off into the night. J.D. Fry. Mike. So I am. Um, I realized lately that I write a lot of poems. Um, first of all, I should say, um, I'm going to read you four poems tonight, four short poems. They're all triolets, so eight lines long each, okay? Um, I, re I was thinking about the poems I was going to read for you, and I um, realized a lot of them uh, have the word I in them, as in I did this, I saw this. Um, and um, I wanted to start by issuing this, a disclaimer that much of the behavior that appears in these poems uh, I didn't necessarily take place in. Um, and the first poem is called um, Tentacles Schmentacles. See what I mean? Tentacles Schmentacles. I will defend my home from the terrestrial squids though I am myself one-seventh cephalopod <laughs> it's part of a background that I've hitherto hid but I will defend my home and family from the terrestrial squids when they show up to take our cars and try to eat our kids when they decide to wave their squishy legs above our local gods. I will defend my home from the terrestrial squids, though in truth 
I am myself one seventh cephalopod. <laughs> Again, the, this poem, uh, don't necessarily take this as truth that I was engaged in these activities. Um, this poem, by the way, also mentions um, the, the artist Sting, musical artist Sting. Um, but it's not really about him either. It's called Show Lace Curtains. Show Lace Curtains. Show Lace Curtains. I caught the whole show through your window tonight. You were dancing without pants on to loud music by Sting. No doubt there are images more incredible to sight than the tableau on show from your window tonight. But with every breath you took, you squeezed your cheeks tight, then relaxed and a desert rose bloomed in the dust of my evening. I caught the whole show through your window tonight. You were dancing without pants on to loud music by Sting. Uh, Third poem is called, Do You Talk to Your Mom with That Poem? It's actually, it's a question mark. Do you talk to your mom with that poem? Not supposed to write a poem in which I say the word fuck, much less a poem in which the word fuck is repeated. I mean, I'm not shouting fuck from the back of a truck, but should I deliver a poem that includes the word fuck? This ain't fucking Shakespeare, and I can feel like a schmuck when my poetry is mistaken for sewage untreated. Not supposed to write a poem in which I say the word fuck, much less a poem in which the word fuck is repeated. (laughs) And one last one. Again, I'm not necessarily thinking about the things I'm writing about here. Um, this this poem is uh, uh, this poem is actually written because of the title, like your poem. Um, so this poem came from the title. The title is "Nerd Rustling." Nerd Nerd Rustling. There are people out there like my old housemate, Klaus, whom I just cannot picture in the wild throes of orgasm. (laughs) He'd be flapping and rising like an ostrich in joust, I guess, but just not my old housemate, Klaus. He was only awkwardly sexy, a big bird in a blouse. And it's the use of his parts, though, not the weather he has them. Ain't nobody questioning the equipment of Klaus. I just can't visualize him in the hot throes of orgasm.
Thanks a lot, folks. You really brought us to a climax there, JD. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. Uh, actually, JD's books are for sale back there if you're interested. Uh, let's give another wonderful round of applause. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.